Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone out to another Tuesday night for Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher with Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll entertain some liturgy tonight, and then we'll get started into our study. Let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we are so excited about uh, the spirits moving in our midst these days. We know that, indeed, Father, you have not left us without direction, but rather you have uh, given us a sense of purpose as is spelled out for us in the pages of your word and has been relayed to us through the power of your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. Father, even though uh, the words of the text were written thousands of years ago, we know that by your power and by your spirit, indeed, our very purpose for life is is written in the text. It may not be uh, written in a, in a way that I can just open the page and see my name and see what schedule I have for uh, today or next week or next month, etc. But, Father, I know that as I press into your words, as I press into the scriptures, I know that I'm going to find the direction. For indeed, you have promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto us. And I couple that promise, uh, those words of the Master in Matthew, I couple those uh, with the words found earlier in the Tanakh that read, uh, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding quoting from the KJV, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. So Lord, I know that if I want to know the direction for my life, I need to press into the scriptures. I need to seek you first. I need to acknowledge you, and I need to, to surrender my life to you. And so Father, that's what we seek to do as we study the text afresh, as we press into the words of Paul in this book of Galatians. Father, we seek to know your will for our lives, for our communities, for our families, uh, for us as individuals. Father, be with us uh, ever um, closely, ever closer, as we read the news, as we watch um, the, the, the news, as we read um, the, the newspapers or the internet or whatnot, as we listen to uh, what's going on around us. Lord, it, the, the, the days are growing darker. 
But we know that light will shine brightly in these last evil days, even as Daniel prophesied that uh, um, they who they they who know you will shine brightly like the stars of heaven. And so we seek to know you so that we can be shining bright lights in this age of darkness, in this age of doubt, in this age of deception. We don't want to be deceived. We want to press in and know you, Lord. So we seek to avail ourselves of your words and of your spirit so that we can apply it. Help us to um, surrender our lives to you, to say no to sin and say yes to Yeshua. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in Yeshua's name, Amen. Okay, well, uh, I'd like to welcome everyone out to another class, as I mentioned. This is, um, this should be week 13. Let me just check real quick. Uh, this is week 14. Here, I lost count. Week 14 of Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. And today is January 26th, 2016. And we meet every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time to study for about an hour the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel, and I've written the commentary, and it's available online. You can download the entire commentary. You don't have to wait for me to teach it to you. You can jump ahead. I don't mind. I encourage you to read ahead. You can go to www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right on the homepage, there is, there's two places you can um, catch up uh, to where we're at in the commentary. You can either click on the um, live internet Galatians study link right at the very top of the page. should show up as a kind of a golden yellow banner. Click on that, and it'll load information about the live internet study that I'm conducting right now, that I'm conducting each week. And um, just scroll down to the page, and you'll see information about whatever we're going to be talking about for each week. For instance, right now it says current week 14, and it'll give you the meeting time, the meeting topic, and, and the details there. Also, um, since I know not everyone is able to make it out to the live studies, I record them. And so um, you're able to go back and listen to the studies after the fact. You don't have to join us live. It would be nice if you could join us live, but if you can't, that's fine. I understand the schedules don't always line up. So you're certainly welcome to go back and listen to the recordings after the fact. And using that same web page that I just mentioned, just scroll down to the bottom of the page, and there's a link that says click here for live study audio recordings. And I usually try and post the audios about a day after I have recorded them live, okay? The other place that you can find me on the web is stay on my website, tetsetorah.com, and um, in the navigation section along the top, that's black with, with the white writing, click on the link that says Galatians Commentary. And when you click on that, you can scroll down into the page and uh, scroll past the banner, and you can just find the, the study right online there. Each chapter or each um, section has its own link, uh, web link, um, page link, so you can just click on whatever topic you'd like and uh, follow the study. Or, if you'd like to just download the entire um, study for offline viewing, you can access it as a PDF document. Just click on the link there that says view slash download entire updated commentary in PDF format. As of um, today, or the current teaching, is 122 pages. If you'd like to print it out, you're certainly welcome to. And then you can study along with us that way. So either way, whatever is easier for you, you're certainly welcome to study after the fact if you're not able to join us live each week. 
Okay, um, this week we're going to continue where we were where we were at last week, and we're in section three entitled Proselyte Conversion Works of Law Part One Understanding the Background. So this week we're going to do a continuation of that. So we're still in Proselyte Conversion Works of Law Part One Understanding the Background. We'll just do continued, and I think we'll be able to finish up this week. Um, if you are with us in the live class right now, then you'll see that I'm parked right about the middle of the page where we left off last week. And before we get started there, let me jump into some liturgy. And I want to I go back and read the circumcision liturgy that we had been borrowing for about, say, two weeks, three weeks ago. And the reason I want to revisit the circumcision liturgy is because uh, as I was prepping for tonight's study, um, I realized that there was something in the passage that I really wanted to kind of bring out. And so if you're looking at the live class, I'm going to do something a little different this time. Normally I just read the liturgy on a different web page and you don't see what I'm reading. But this time I went ahead and took little snapshots and uploaded them into the WizIQ so that you can see what I'm reading. So let's jump first. Uh, if you're in the live class, you'll see I've just moved over to Genesis 17 from the English Standard Version. And so what I'll do is I'll read what I'm going to... I'll read the English and then I'll jump over to the Hebrew so you'll be able to see for the liturgy. I think I'll try and adapt this format from now on where I just uh, take snapshots of what I'm going to read for the liturgy. And that way you can file, follow along. Um, if not, if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis 17. And I'm not going to read all 14 verses. I just want to read verses 9 through 14 for the liturgy section. So, uh, Genesis 17, starting in verse 9, reads, quote, and God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in the land, I'm sorry, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. Okay, um, let's jump over to the Hebrew of that. I just took a snapshot of those same uh, few verses uh, off the website that I normally access them from. So uh, if you can read Hebrew, follow along with me. If you can't, well then just listen along. Um, the Hebrew of those same few verses, 9 through 14, and I'll... I'll stop between each verse, uh, so at least you can follow along that way. Uh, verse 9 reads, Vayomer Elohim el Avraham va'ata et briti tishmoru, I'm sorry, tishmoru ata v'zaracha achrecha v'doratam. Verse 10, Zot briti asher tishmoru beini uveinechum uvein zaracha achrecha himo lachem kol zachar. Verse 11, Un maltem et basar oratchem Vahayal ot briti beini uveinechem. Verse 12. Uvein shmonat yamim yimul lachem kol zachar ladorotechem. Ya lead betak bait u miknat kesef machol bein nechor 
Asher lo mizarachahu. Lost my place there. Verse 13. Himol yimol yalid betacha umichnat kaspacha vahaita briti bivsarachem livrit olam. And verse 14. Vaorel zachar asher lo yimol et basar orrato vnichrata hanefesh hahi mea meha et briti hefar. And let me see if I can break out the little pointer tool. If you're in the uh, live class, you'll see I can point there. There's the first word. Maybe I could have done like this. Vayomer Elohim El Avraham Vata Et Briti, etc. All right. Um, let's jump over to the Greek now. Uh, well, first let's jump over to the... Uh, first let's jump over to the um, New Testament passage out of Galatians. I read this a few weeks back, and I've returned to it instead of uh, using the Galatians 2 passage. I want to jump back over to the Galatians 5 passage, because I'm going to use the information in tonight's teaching. Um, this is Galatians 5, verses 1 through... I just want to read through verses 6, 1 through 6, out of the ESV again, and then I'll jump over to the Greek of the same passage. Uh, this reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. From Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And now let's do the same uh, six verses in the Greek. And uh, if you're looking at the, uh, if you're in the um, live class, you'll see that I've got the Greek pulled up there. So let's read that. Uh, I've got the little arrow pointer there, so I'm starting right there. It reads, Te Lutheria, Hemas Christos, Eleutherosin, Stekete Ukai, Me Palin, Zugo Duleas Enakeste. Verse 2. Ide egu palos legu human hati in peritemnesta Christos humas uden ophelese. Verse 3. Marturo mai de palen panti anthropo peritemnomeno hati ophelese ophelites esten halen ton namon poiesai. Verse 4. Katargeta apo Christu Hotines en namu de caiuthe tes caratas exepasate. Verse 5. Hemais gara punumati ec pistios elpida de caiusunes apectecometha. Verse 6. En gar Christo Jesu ute peratum peratim. Let's try that one again. I'm right there. Peratum peratim. Why am I stumbling over that one? Peratome, there we go. Ti iscue ute acrobustia a la pistis di agapes in ergumene. All right. Thank you for allowing me to stumble through the Hebrew and the Greek. I, I confess, I'm neither a native Hebrew speaker nor a native Greek speaker. So I've taught myself Hebrew and Greek. So 
uh, that's that. <laughs> so uh, take with it what you can. Uh, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm practicing every week to, to uh, get a little better for you all so that it's a little smoother, so not as choppy. But in the meantime, that's the best I can do for now. So uh, at least what I'm, what I'm aiming to do when I read through the Hebrew and the Greek is I'm aiming not only for pronunciation, but I'm also aiming for recognition of the words that I'm reading so that I can figure out what I'm reading and um, become familiar with it. I mean, I'm familiar enough with it that when I see a Greek or Hebrew word that I may not have total recognition of what I'm reading. In other words, my vocabulary isn't 100%. Even though I can read the text, I, I'm not 100%. I'm, I'm kind of the same way with, with the Korean. I can read the Korean text, but I'm not 100% of what I'm reading. So what I do is I aim first to be able to pronounce it so that I can be able to look it up in a dictionary and then find out what the words are that I'm missing. Otherwise, if I can't even read the text, read the script, like the Hebrew or the Greek or the Korean in my case, then I won't be able to use a dictionary very well. So... I I went for the uh, reading first, and then I fill in the vocabulary words a little later on. But in this case, in the age of internet, you know, you don't have to be a Hebrew Greek scholar. You can just use the internet, look up words, uh, use a Strong's Concordance, or whatever uh, helps you dig a little deeper into the text. Okay, all right. Let's jump over to the study. Um, last week we left off with this um, topic of circumcision, and we've been, it seems like we've been on circumcision for quite a while, and for those of you who are following along with the study, you're probably wondering, when am I going to get into the book of Galatians? Well, actually what I've done is when I wrote the study, instead of just doing a verse-by-verse exposition of the book, I decided that I would prime my readers, or in this case, my listeners, I would prime my audience by first discussing the topics that are found in the book. So I I wrote the commentary with 12 what I call topical sections first. And then after studying the topical sections, then I actually do go through a somewhat limited verse-by-verse exposition. And in doing so, I think what will allow you, the reader, to do is to experience the text, at least experience my commentary, um, the verse-by-verse part of it, a little differently than if you would have just, say, read through a standard commentary where it goes verse-by-verse, and they have to explain why they render their commentary the way they do, why they apply the comments to each verse. And I, I, I hope that it helps you approach the text um, with a deeper understanding of it. In other words, I, I'm priming you by giving you the background um, and the topical sections first, and then allowing you to go back and, say, read through the text on your own, or just follow along with my own commentary when you get to the verse-by-verse section. And we're going to get to that section probably in a few months or maybe in a year from now. It depends on where we, what the pace of the, the study is. Uh, one last uh, note real quick, and then I'll jump into the study. Um, for those of you who are following along, and this is week 14, and you're wondering what the schedule is like, Basically, what we do is we go on, we teach for 10 weeks, and we take a break for two weeks, and then we take we teach for 10 weeks, and we take a break for two weeks. And during the time we take the break, that's an opportunity for you, the student, to go back through the notes, go back through the audio recordings, and catch up on things that you've missed, or go back and uh, refresh yourself on wherever we were in the study, in case you do miss, or in case... I went too fast, or in case you want to go over on your own again and, and just kind of dig in deeper and see if what I'm saying is lining up with what you're understanding, or f- see if I'm making mistakes, see if there are places where I need corrections. Either way, take the two-week um, break opportunity to um, um, 
to either catch up or to do refresher learning on your own. And then that, that way when we jump into the next semester of 10 weeks, then you're, I, I hope as a teacher that you're caught up with where I'm at. Otherwise, I don't really have the time to just keep going back over everything that we've studied. So I hope that's a, that'll help you guys uh, follow along with where I'm going in the study. That being said, we're in the second semester on one. We're on week 14. And, and the two-week breaks, by the way, don't count against the 10 weeks, meaning 1 through 10, and then the two weeks breaks are 0, 0. And then when we start with the second semester at week 11, then it doesn't, it doesn't count that. Uh, I'm not counting those two weeks in. And when I say week 14, it doesn't count those two weeks. I hope that makes sense. All right. Um, what we're talking about then is we're kind of continuing this talk about circumcision. And the reason, if you remember from the last few weeks, the reason I've been um, parked on this topic for quite a while is because when you're reading through Paul's writings, it becomes instantly aware. This is even to your average reader. This, this doesn't take a seminarian to figure this part out, what I'm about to say next. When you read through Paul's writings, it becomes instantly aware that Paul is disappointed at the legalism of the first century Jews. And there is a, a deficiency that he is going to identify in his, in his letter, and he's going to identify it, and he's going to provide a solution to the deficiency plaguing, I say plaguing, the first century Jewish communities of his day. And so what we're attempting to do when we study the book of Galatians is to first identify the deficiency. In other words, we know that the, the first century Jews functioned with a, a, a type of a legalism, a type of, de, of a deficiency, um, a misunderstanding of either their position or salvation or um, their, their, uh, their own scriptures. Um, to be sure, they, they, they misunderstood the Messiah when he came, right? I mean, they 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 uh, staged a mock a, a, a sham trial. You know, it wasn't even a fair trial. Um, it was a scandal, and they you know they hauled him off to a cross and crucified him. So I mean, if they would have understood him from their own scriptures, they wouldn't have done that. Of course, this didn't thwart the plans of God. You know, God knew Hashem knew that this is how they would react when He sent His Son into the world. So it played right into the plans of Hashem. But the point I'm trying to make when we study the book of Galatians is that when Paul was sent by the risen Yeshua to go back and to teach the gospel to the, the communities that needed to hear it, when it came to Galatia, the Spirit of God moved Paul to write with such a passion about the misunderstanding of, of salvation and the misunderstanding of of what it means to be a righteous person, what it means to be found righteous in God, and what it means to to really to be saved if we could just use church lingo. So when you're studying through the book of Galatians, you you instantly become aware that there's a problem and that Paul is providing a solution. So in the in the in the problem part, if 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 you could kind of dissect the book of Galatians into two um two goals. One goal is to identify the problem and the other goal is to identify the solution. At least, if, I, if I, as, as I'm simplistically um, uh, defining it for you here in the class. So, in, in our first um, endeavor to identify the problem, what we've found is, historically, that the Jewish people of the first century um, misunderstood their own scriptures, and they, they misunderstood their own position in the covenant that, that God made with them. And so... 
um, Paul calls this misunderstanding works of the law. And we saw that in, say, Galatians 2.16, where Paul says it's not by the works of the law that one is justified, but it's by the faith in Christ that one is justified, um, made right before God. In fact, if I go back and pull up the ESV passage, um, Paul says here, look, I, Paul, tell you, this is Galatians 5.2, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is the reason why I'm parked out on circumcision for a while. Why is Paul picking on circumcision? And so that's going to be one of the central topics of our discussion, into, of our foray into the book of Galatians first. Now, those of you who have followed me for any length of time know that I do not espouse to the traditional understanding offered by the Christian church that in Messiah, the Torah is no longer relevant for us as believers. Okay? Most of you know that, that, I, that I disagree with that position. In other words, it's no secret that mainstream Christianity, for the most part, rejects Torah obedience or Torah relevance. And what, what I mean by that is, essentially, if you ask your average pastor, your average Christian, do you think keeping the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, is an important um, commandment that you should be obeying? Most of them will say, no, Jesus did away with that. Jesus nailed that commandment to the cross. He fulfilled it. Or they'll say, Paul says we're no longer under those commandments. Something like that. And you could ask, you could go down the list and ask the same questions about keeping kosher, keeping the festivals, um, wearing seat seat, um, placing a mezuzah on your door, and things like that. And so essentially, what we've what we've uh, what we've come up with over the last say two thousand years since the New Testament has been written is we have largely two camps, two schools of thought, and those are the two camps that I describe in my commentaries. And the first camp I call them the Church or Historic Christianity. And they are the group that essentially believes in Jesus, but but rejects the parts of Torah that they call the um, ceremonial or the civil parts. They don't reject the moral parts. They do believe that you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, things like that. But they don't believe that we should keep what they call the ceremonial parts, which would include the Sabbaths, the feast days, the... the um, the wearing of seed seat, uh, the circumcision, things like that. They don't believe that those parts are relevant for us today. And so I call that camp the church or historic Christianity. And then on the other hand, I have another of camp that I describe called the messianic camp. And these are the group of people that for the last 2,000 years, they have felt or they believe, and they've, they really feel, and I'm part of this camp, by the way, they believe that the, the scriptures are still relevant for us. And... They believe that we should be keeping Seventh-day Sabbath. We should keep, be keeping kosher to the best of our ability. We should be relying on the Spirit to lead us into Torah obedience. In a word, they don't believe that the ceremony has been done away with in Jesus. In other words, in order for this other camp, the Messianic camp, to, to lead the lifestyle that they do, they radically in, reinterpret many passages out of the New Testament, to include the book of Galatians. So that's where we find some friction, and to be sure, some, some uh, disagreement in our discussions. Now, if you've noticed, both camps agree that Jesus is Messiah. So we're not trying to make what I call a salvific discussion here. We're not trying to decide 
how one becomes saved. In other words, both of the camps that I described, the church on one hand and the Messianics on the other hand, they're both saved groups. They both believe that Jesus is Messiah and that there is only one way to the Father and that his name is Jesus. And therefore, it's not a salvific discussion. At least I hope it isn't. Um, and so I call this an in-house debate. So when we're going through the book of Galatians, it becomes important or becomes uh, vital to make a distinction between what I'm calling the deficiency in the first century, the legalism of the first century. Uh, it becomes important that we don't lose sight of the fact that, that we, we Messianics, we Torah-observant uh, Jews and Gentiles, that we don't lose sight of the fact that when the church says that by the works of the law, no one can be saved, and that no one can be saved by keeping the law and things like that. It's important that we Messianics agree with that theological position. We Messianics agree with the church that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We, the Messianics, agree that you cannot keep Torah to become saved. And so we Messianics have a clever saying that we like to say to our Christian counterparts, those who are not keeping Torah at least not keeping the parts that make them look Jewish. Right? In, in reality, I'll, I'll share a secret with you Messianics. Don't tell your Christian friends and family member that they're not keeping Torah, because in reality, they are. They're keeping Torah. They just don't know they're keeping Torah. Amen? Don't drive a wedge between you and them by telling them that they're not keeping Torah. In fact, to believe in Messiah is the most Torah-relevant thing you can do. So Christians are keeping Torah. They just don't call it keeping Torah. And they don't like to do the things that, that outwardly make them look, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, Jewish. All right? But other than that, they are keeping Torah. But what we need to make sure is that we agree with them when it comes to uh, the, parts, uh, the parts of Galatians that we agree with them with. And that is, uh, works of law won't save you, keeping Torah won't save you. So as we have this discussion in the book of Galatians here, and particularly as we go back to the um, circumcision passages, we realize that Paul has nothing good to say about works of the law. And, and, it, and, it, and it seems like he has nothing good to say about circumcision. I mean, gosh, look at, look at the Genesis, I'm sorry, look at the Galatians 5, 2 passage. I, Paul, tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I tell you, this is verse 3, I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You, you're, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace, right? Sounds like Paul doesn't have anything good to say about circumcision. And it sounds like he's he's leaving behind his Jewishness, leaving behind the Torah, and he's embracing a law-free gospel. And indeed, it sounds like the Christian church is right. Until we dig a little bit deeper. And that's what I aim to do in this study. So let's go back to my study, and let's see how far I can get in tonight's reading. I'm going to um, start again in the middle of the page... Um, let's see, if, if you were to, if you have the, the entire study downloaded, I'm on page 16, section 3, Proselyte Conversion Works of the Law. And let's scroll down into the study, and we left off, left off with this um, paragraph that starts out, So as I see it, so let me just read that and then keep reading. I think what I'll do first is I'll read down through the study, the the, the the few pages here, and then I'll go back and just kind of fill in uh, freehand. Uh, in other words, I'll, I'll explain what I wrote and why I wrote it, okay? And hopefully that'll be an easier way to uh, go through the study. Let me read. 
the church knows, this is, this is uh, a segue from last week, the church knows that Israel both then and now is preoccupied with Torah observed, I'm sorry, I don't want to start that far back. Let's start here. Start right there. So as I see it, we have historic Israel abusing their covenant status based on her blindness to Yeshua, and we have the church misunderstanding Torah obedience and circumcision based on her negative reaction to anything that makes Gentiles look Jewish. And I have Jewish in air quotes there. Rooted in part by Israel's abuse and misunderstanding of the very same Torah that prophesied that Jesus was the true Messiah. What a mess, right? Put another way, historic Israel of then and now obviously misunderstands her own scriptures. Along comes the church taking her cue from unbelieving Israel concerning the meaning of Torah observance and works of the law, and we end up with the blind leading the blind. Oy vey. Because of the compounding of these historic misunderstandings today, as well as 2,000 years ago, Christianity has developed an unnecessary amount of paranoia surrounding circumcision. And in some ways, I cannot blame them for taking the stance that they have. The rabbinic literature is replete with the significance of this ostensible simple act. Ostensibly simple act. Observe the comments that I uh yanked out of Wikipedia, which is not always the most trusted source, but in this case, it's trustable, it's reliable enough for just for me to um, make the point I'm trying to make. Let's pull some quotes from Wikipedia. Uh, quote, during the Babylonian exile, the Sabbath and circumcision became the characteristic symbols of Judaism. This seems to be the underlying idea of Isaiah. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a passage from Isaiah there, which reads, quote, the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath uh, still hold fast to my covenant, though not having the sign of the covenant, uh, which is a reference from Genesis upon their flesh. And we read the Genesis 17 passage there, Genesis 17:11. Let's keep reading from Wikipedia. Con uh, contact with Greek polytheistic culture, especially at the games of the arena, made this distinction obnoxious to Jewish Hellenists seeking to assimilate into Greek culture. Consequence was their attempt to appear like the Greeks by epispasm, which means to make themselves foreskins. That's what the uh, phrase epispasm means. And there's some references to the, the books of the Maccabees, as well as you can reference Josephus and some other uh, references there. We have 1 Corinthians in this reference, the Tosefta, the Talmud tractates, and um, Talmud tractates Shabbat, Yevamut, Yerushalmi, which is the um, Jerusalem uh, Talmud, and then also some tractates there from Yevamot. So, let's keep reading from Wikipedia. Also, some Jews at this time stopped circumcising their children. Maccabees 2.46 records that the Maccabean zealots forcibly circumcised all the uncircumcised boys that they found within the borders of Israel. Wow. The rabbis also took action to ensure that the practice of circumcision did not die out. In order to prevent the obliteration of the seal of the covenant on the flesh, as circumcision was henceforth called, the rabbis, uh, probably after Bakhokba's revolt, which would have been um, 135-136, um, that's when the Bakhokba revolt took place. This, of course, was after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They instituted what we call the piriah, which is the laying bare of the glands, without which circumcision was declared to be of no value. That's a reference from the Talmud. To be born circumcised was regarded as the privilege of the most saintly of people from Adam, quote, who was made in the image of God, end quote, and Moses to Zerubbabel. And that references from the, um, the Midrash um, out of the Talmud as well. 
Let's keep reading Wikipedia's quote. Uncircumcision being considered a blemish, circumcision was to remove this blemish and to render Abraham and his descendants quote-unquote perfect. That's a um, reference from the Talmud out of the Midrash. I'm sorry, the Talmud, as well as the Midrash to Genesis Rabbah. Rabbinic literature holds that one who removes his circumcision has no portion in the world to come. That's a very important quote right there. Rabbinic literature holds that one who removes the circumcision has no portion in the world to come. Um, that's a reference from the Mishnah, as well as the Midrash to Sifrei in Numbers and the Talmud Sanhedrin 99. According to the uh, Midrash to Pirkei, Rabbi Eliezer, it was Shem, uh, uh, Noah's son, who circumcised Abraham and Ishmael on the Day of Atonement. Of course, that's just Jewish tradition. And the blood of the covenant then is shed ever before God on that day to serve as an atoning power. According to the same Midrash, Pharaoh prevented the Hebrew slaves from performing the rite, but when the Passover time came and brought them deliverance, they underwent circumcision and mingled the blood of the Paschal Lamb with that of the Abrahamic covenant. Wherefore, as we read in Ezekiel, God repeats the words, quote, In thy blood live. Okay, that's the end quote from um, Wikipedia. Let's pull another lengthy quote for my commentary. This is from a Christian author who happens to be a Messianic Jew, just like myself. Mark Nanos has demonstrated most credibly that the Judaisms of the first century functioned with a serious theological flaw in regards to their view of circumcision. So, let's pick up his discussion from a paper that he wrote entitled, quote, The Local Contexts of the Galatians Towards Resolving a Catch-22, end quote which at the time that I downloaded it on way back on May 15th of 2005 was available for reading at his site at the, at the link that you see in my commentary. All right, this is the quote from Mark Nanos, the, the Messianic Jewish author. Quote, Paul was an outsider to Galatia. In fact, he was the only one from elsewhere of whom we can be certain. And Paul's message, to the degree that it offered inclusion of Gentiles as full and equal members, while opposing their participation in proselyte conversion, ran counter to prevailing Jewish communal norms for the re-identification of pagans seeking full membership, at least according to the, all the evidence now available to us. Pursuit of this non-proselyte approach to the inclusion of pagans confessing belief in the message of Christ resulted in painful disciplinary measures against Paul from the, heads, from the hands of Jewish communal agents to whom he remained subordinate but in ways that he considers mistaken, for he refers to this as quote-unquote persecution. And there's some references from uh, Galatians 5.11, as well as 2 Corinthians. Let's keep reading Nanos. It's not difficult to imagine that pagans convinced by Paul's gospel that they were entitled to understand themselves as righteous and full members of Jewish communities apart from proselyte conversion, but rather on the basis of faith in a Judean martyr, martyr of the Roman regime, would also in due time meet with resistance, just like Paul, from Jewish communal social control agents. Might not the resultant identity crisis of those non-proselyte associates develop along the lines of the situation implied for the addressees of Paul's letter? This is Nanos' thoughts, by the way. He goes on to say, I suggest that Paul's gospel, or more accurately in this case, the resultant expectations of the non-Jewish addressees who believed in it provoked the initial conflict. Not the good news of the influencers that Paul's converts 
can eliminate the present disputable standing as merely pagans, however welcome as guests, by barking on the path that will offer them inclusion as, as proselytes. Let me get a drink of water here. That offer, Nanos uh, continues, that offer on the part of the influencers in Galatia rather represents the redressing of a social disruption of the traditional communal norms resulting from the claims of pagans who've come under Paul's influence. Thus, the ostensible singularity of the exigence arises not because of a new element introduced by the influencers and does not suggest that they represent a single group moving among the addressees' several congregations. Instead, the influencers may be understood to be similar, similarly appealing to a long-standing norm, however independent of each other's communities they may be acting, when faced with the same disruptive claim on the part of the new Christ-believing subgroups within their communities. The conflict arises because of the claim that their Gentile members are to be relegated as full members of those Jewish of these Jewish groups apart from proselyte conversion. And then I have uh, just two more paragraphs in my own commentary, which I'd like to read, and then I'll go back and explain because I know that's a mouthful for everyone. All right, my own commentary reads: With this background in mind. We're now better poised to uncover the true meaning of phrases such as works of the law and under the law. I maintain that the phrase works of the law cannot simply mean deeds done in accordance with Torah commands. If we were to give the surrounding Jewish documents of the first century their proper place among scholarly research. But even more important is the fact that if we interpret works of the law as Torah observance, then we end up with Paul discouraging Gentiles, and by inclusion Messianic Jews as well, from keeping the commandments of God, a position I believe is untenable given Paul's positive views of Torah observance spelled out elsewhere in his letters. And I have a footnote uh, in my commentary that references, for instance, see 1 Corinthians 7.19, which reads, quote, being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing. But what does mean something is keeping God's commandments, right? That's kind of an odd statement from Paul. If Paul doesn't want the newly emerging Christian groups to be keeping Torah anymore, like the Christian church teaches that Paul teaches, if that's true that Paul was teaching the abandonment of Torah, then why does Paul tell the Christian groups that what does matter is keeping God's commandments. Sounds like the exact opposite of what the church teaches, but we'll get to that a little later. This last paragraph in my own commentary reads, quote, Surely it will become necessary to flesh out the details of the implications of this chapter's premise later on, a task we shall undertake in chapter 5, which is entitled Works of the Law, Part 2. For now, it is enough to understand the basic truth that first century Israel's view of law-keeping was tantamount to what the church defines as legalism. But it is important to understand the unique kind of blindness that, is, that keeps Israel from recognizing this as legalism. To get at the heart of the matter requires the diligent Bible student to learn a valuable lesson from history, a lesson rooted in a technical term called covenantal gnomism. And with that, I'll leave off in my commentary. We'll pick up We'll be poised to start chapter 4 next week. However, let's go back up into my commentary and kind of 
see if we can unpack what I read for us. All right. Essentially, as I have studied, been studying the book of Galatians for the last 15 years on my own, really, I've been studying it from longer than that, but more intently, I've been studying it with a view towards really seeking to rediscover what Paul means by this phrase, works of the law, and what was the specific legalism of the first century that really upset Paul so much to the point that he had to even coin the whole book. Why did he even write the book of Galatians? And as you all know from following along with my commentaries, you know that the traditional Christian church, this is how I have I've stated it in previous commentaries, the traditional Christian church essentially believes that the legalism of the first century was a misuse of Torah. In other words, the Christian church today, and you can read this position in any traditional commentary to the book of Galatians, just Head on down to your standard Christian bookstore, pick up a commentary to the book of Galatians, or go online and do the same. And essentially, this is the view that you're going to come up with. This is the view that's going to be presented to you. And I have to keep going over this over and over again in every commentary, in every teaching that I do, because I really want it to set inside of you just like like um, like uh, secondhand. I want you to be able to spot this instantly as a student of the Torah. I want you to be able to recognize that the traditional Lutheran view of Paul, which is the view you're going to encounter when you read through your, your standard Christian commentary, you're going to find that the traditional um, view of Paul is essentially um, that the legalism of the first century was that the Jewish people were keeping Torah with the view of trying to become saved. In other words, the, the Jewish people of the first century believed that if you kept the Torah perfectly, that God would save you. And therefore, Paul had to come along and teach them that no one can keep the Torah perfectly, and that in fact, in Christ, the Torah has been done away with. And therefore, the Christian need not, need not burden himself with going back under the law, with, need not burden himself with trying to accept an approach to God that centers focus that focuses primarily on keeping the Torah. And in fact, and this is still the Christian view, and in fact, since the Torah has been done away with, we now have a freedom in Christ to pursue not only salvation through Christ, but to pursue sanctification outside of Torah obedience. Are you following along with me? This is the traditional Christian position on the book of Galatians. And in this view, the traditional Christian position takes the phrase works of the law that we read in Galatians as essentially Torah obedience. And in that view, the legalism of the first century is trying to work your way into heaven by keeping the law. And so, because Paul explicitly says in Romans 6, uh, I want to say 6, um, 15 and 16, that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Paul explicitly says that in no uncertain terms. We are not under the law, we're under grace. And because traditional Christianity equates the phrase works of the law with under the law, and traditional Christianity identifies both of those phrases as essentially doing the Torah, that is to say, keeping the commandments. And because Paul says we're no longer under the law, 
This means traditional Christianity interprets works of the law in a negative light, and they interpret works of the law as, as the same as under the law, which is keeping Torah, which means traditional Christianity has come to the conclusion that keeping the Torah is a negative thing in Paul's view. Are you following along with my logic? Because of that position, keeping the Torah becomes uh, removed from your traditional Christian experience. And you have to keep reminding yourself, when I say keeping the Torah, traditional Christianity defines keeping the Torah as those parts of the Torah that describe the ceremonial and the civil. Right? So in a word, Christianity says we don't have to keep the we don't have to keep the Sabbath, we don't have to keep kosher, things like that. However, I find this this interpretation to be problematic for many reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna highlight those reasons tonight because I've talked about them in previous teachings. Um, suffice it to say, I find that to be an untenable position, not only theologically, but historically. And it's the historic part that I'm highlighting in my commentary tonight. It's that part that I'm highlighting with my um, revisiting the circumcision texts. Because if you, if you remember, let's pull up the Genesis uh, 17 passage again. If you remember, God said that um, circumcision was to be an, a, an everlasting covenant. Look at verse 13 of the Genesis 17 text. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So if Paul is stay, saying, if Paul is teaching the Christians in Galatia that circumcision is no longer relevant, then Paul is disagreeing and in fact contradicting the words of Moses in Genesis 17. Are you seeing that? So when we take, for instance, the Galatians 5 passage, and Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, verse 4, you who would be justified by the law. The Christian church takes justified by the law, in the ESV's rendering here, as justified by keeping the Torah. And indeed, on the surface, that's what it sounds like, because that's what the verse reads in its natural way. It seems to be reading... But yet, that's not what Paul's really saying, even though that's what he said. I mean, it sounds like I'm, I'm it sounds like I'm, I'm, it sounds like I'm out of my mind, <laughs> quite frankly. I, I know people who listen to my commentaries and they say, Ariel, I can read the English. And it says, Paul says, you're severed from Christ because you're trying to be justified by the law. If, if, if Paul's not teaching if Paul didn't believe that the first century Jews of his people were trying to be justified by the law, then exactly what was, what were they trying to be justified by? And and I, I, I just stick with me for a moment, okay? Paul writes that, but that's not what he means exactly. What he means is, what I mean is that justified by the law is a technical phrase. In other words, from the first century perspective, the word law there doesn't just simply mean the five books of Moses. And Paul isn't really imagining that his first century audience believes simplistically that if they walk into the five books of Moses, kind of like a simplistic grocery list, that they would come out the other end as a saved individual or as a righteous individual or someone who would be justified. Instead, the legalism of Paul's day focused or centered on primarily their identity as Israelites, as a group, 
And for an individual, it's centered on your identity as a Jewish Israelite for an individual. So what we had in the first century was a membership question. And the question from the outsiders and the insiders, you know, you had, you had the, 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 um, the uh, uh, opposition going on from the inside and the outside, those who were in the group and those who were outside the group. The question for those on the outside was, how do I get in? And the answer from those who were on the inside was, you get in by being an Israelite. And the question from the outside was, well, how do I become an Israelite? And the answer from the inside was, you become an Israelite by converting to Judaism or by be, being born a Jew. So Jewish identity got you into the group known as Israel. And once you were in the group called Israel, once you became a Jew or once you recognized your Jewish status as a, as a born Jew, then, then the membership package known as Torah and all of its promises, and what do those promises include? The age to come, the inheritance of blessing, and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? The Torah, the Torah was basically the inheritance package, right? It was the lottery ticket, <laughs> um, if you'll allow me to use that analogy without being sanctimonious. Um, basically, to get in the group, one became a Jew if they weren't already one by birth. And once you accepted or took on Jewish status, then the Torah was given to you or it was it was um it became your inheritance right it's kind of like if you're not a gates a member of the gates family then you don't get any of bill gates money so how do you how do you as a non gates family member gain access to bill gates inheritance you first become a member of the gates family that's step 1 and then once you are adopted into the family in step one, you then, in step two, get put on the list of the inheritance of the millions or the billions that he has, right? So, in my analogy of the Bill Gates um, picture that I've just described, the first century Jews saw the adoption into Israel as the first step, and then the Torah became the um, became the inheritance. The Torah was was the, the 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 money as it were was the, because it was the blessing package it was the it was the um it was the uh it was the prize that you inherited once you first became a member of the Jewish people via either birth or the proselyte ceremony so when paul says in in uh, galatians 5 here look i tell you that those of you who you're severed from christ you who would be justified by the law the phrase justified there um, from the Dikaio word group in the Greek, is courtroom language. And it's basically the declaration of the judge who declares the person as either righteous or unrighteous. And of course, we want God to declare us as righteous. And so in order for us to be declared justified or to be declared righteous by God in his courtroom, we have to be found in Christ, not be found by the law. And the kicker is this phrase, by the law. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reason Paul describes it as by the law is because the law became the inheritance of someone who was born into Jewish status or someone who, was, who had membership in Israel first. And so for the Jewish people, it was theirs by grace. At least that's what they thought. That's how they felt because they were born that way.
right? God graciously called them out of Egypt, brought them to the foot of Sinai, and what did he do? He gave them his Torah. Remember, the paradigm set in the book of Exodus is not that they earned their way into the covenant. The paradigm in the book of Exodus is that God graciously gave them the Torah simply because he set his love on the fathers. And he, he, he promised to, to, to rescue them from their enemies and to bring them into a good and spacious land, right? So the paradigm that the rabbis saw as they read through their scriptures was that we don't, we're not trying to earn our way into God's family. We're not trying to earn our way into justification by the law. The law doesn't save us. That's not what the rabbis were teaching. They were teaching that just like the paradigm described in the book of Exodus, they were describing that we're saved because we're Jews. God set his affection on us just because we're Israelites. Now, of course, you have to remind yourself that that's mistaken as well, that theology is bad. But the paradigm is, is, is angled in such a way that it would lead you to that conclusion if you weren't watching carefully. And so when Paul says justified by the law, he's saying justified by your legal status as Jews who are in possession of the law. And that's why he used the phrase law there, because the law becomes the inheritance of a Jew who keeps it. In other words, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're getting in. You have to be a Jew and stay away from idolatry. It's both sides that became the important ingredient that Paul recognized was misleading his Jewish communities of his day. He was realizing that they were misunderstanding their place in the covenant first, and then because of their mistaken identity uh, in the covenant, they were then drawing an improper proper conclusion from their possession of the Torah. It is true that they did possess the Torah. It is true that the Torah was given to Israel. Don't get me wrong. But in their mistaken view of their identity as Jews, they took it one step uh, further and they, they uh, incorrectly came to the conclusion that because they were Jews and possessed the Torah as kind of this badge, this inheritance, this, this, this thing that set them apart from the nations, that then God was going to automatically save them or justify them uh, in a salvific way, in a, in, a salvation, in a salvation way. And so that's why Paul uses the phrase justified by the law. So in conclusion to my commentary, basically... Um, the point I am really trying to stress for those of you who are following along with my Galatians commentary is this. When you read through the book of Galatians and you try to identify the problem and the solution, you're going to naturally turn to the scriptures for support of your understanding of the problem and the solution. And you're also, I hope, going to turn to well-meaning Christian authors, uh, pastors, friends, rabbis, etc. in your effort to identify the problem and the solution as well. And what you're going to have to find, what you're going to have to work out between you and the Holy Spirit, is that whatever, however you understand the problem and the solution, it has to agree with the bulk of the context of scriptures. And so when we have the church teaching that the problem is, in their view, in the church's view, the problem in the first century was a misuse of trying to keep Torah in order to be saved, and that the solution is that we need to get rid of Torah in order to see Christ, I, I halfway applaud them on their, on their identification of the problem, but I cannot agree with their solution. I simply cannot, because there are simply too many 
verses out of the Tanakh, as well as examples from the Apostolic Scriptures that show that the Torah is not done away with, that the Torah is not being relaxed in Jesus, that the Torah, that, that Paul's solution to the problem is not to get rid of Torah. And so I have found that it becomes necessary as a believer to re-examine the, their view of the problem itself. And I have found that history shows, and I do this by um, not only corroborating with Scripture, but also by going back through the, the, uh, some of the rabbinic writings to gain this um, perspective. But I have found that identifying the problem of the first century from the perspective of not trying to use Torah to become saved, but trying to misuse their own Jewish identity to be saved or to, to be counted as righteous, that allows for a different solution to present itself. Because then we have Paul identifying the problem not as Torah obedience with a solution being get rid of the Torah, like the church says. Instead of that being the problem and the solution, what I find that is if we apply the, if we understand the problem as being a misuse of Jewish identity with a solution being a proper understanding of Jewish identity in conjunction or commensurate with a proper use of Torah, the book of Galatians begins to line up uh, better historically and theologically, and it begins to fall in line and sync with the bulk of the rest of the apostolic writings and the bulk of the, the promises in the Torah that are spelled out that God says, in a word, that God wants us to be Torah obedient. Amen? So with that, I'll stop uh, tonight's commentary, and I'll close in prayer. And then I will entertain questions and comments for those of you who are in the live class. Again, I'd like to remind you all that uh, you can meet us every week, Tuesday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here um, for a commentary on exegeting, exegeting Galatians. Um, and it's a messy and a Jewish commentary that I put together. Let's close in prayer, and then um, I'll entertain some questions and comments. Okay, let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, I thank you for allowing me to teach tonight. I thank you for the participation of the students and those who have come out tonight. I pray that you'll bless them where they're at, continue to um, press us in to a better understanding of your words. Father, we seek to understand so that we can apply. We don't just want to study for the sake of academia. We don't just want to study the text because it's a novel idea. We don't want to just uh, enlarge our knowledge of the text. We want to increase our wisdom, and that means we have to learn what we're studying so that we can apply it. It's basically what Ezra did. He studied so that he could do it, and then he taught it, and that's what we want to do, Father. We want to seek to study so that we can do, so that we can be pleasing to you, and so that we can um, be children of the King, and so that we can be ambassadors for you. So for that reason, we ask that you will continue to lead us along by your spirit, by your power, into the pages of the text so that we can see the Messiah. Thank you, Father, for all these wonderful truths that you're revealing to us time and time again. Indeed, your words are timeless, and for that reason, we shall ever study them and we'll never exhaust ourselves on their words. Be with us tonight. Go with us uh, this week as we um, continue to be a witness to those around us. Heal us, O Lord, and we will be healed, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. 
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.